From Coruscant to Tatooine and every planet in between. Star Wars, prototypes and production with your host, David Quinn. It's a trap! Yes, I just returned from the last big collector's event of the year. It was an annual Sithmas meetup in the Lancaster area of Pennsylvania, hosted by our friend Mike DiStefano. The event included members from four different regional Star Wars clubs and gave us the opportunity to kick off December in style and to celebrate the holidays together. I love the in-person meetups. Just being able to be in the same room with our friends and fellow collectors is a blessing and is truly the best part of the hobby. And I had a chance to spend some time with Ron Salvatore during the weekend. You may know Ron as the author of many informative and groundbreaking articles he's written for the website The Star Wars Collector's Archive and its companion blog. You may know him through the Empire State Star Wars Collectors Club, of which he's a proud member and is co-founder of the New York collecting event known as The Annual. Or you may have gotten to know him through his appearances on the Kivecast podcast and a number of other podcasts and panels, where he's spoken in-depth about collecting and vintage Star Wars memorabilia. In the previous episode, Ron and I sat down for a conversation about the articles he wrote in the first half of this year. He covered the Kenner-sponsored Junior Achievement Program in Cincinnati during the original trilogy era and how it led to some rare and fascinating pieces that may not be on most collectors' radars. And he shed light upon the metal miniatures created by Neville Stockin and sold in July of 1977, two months after the release of the first Star Wars film, likely making them the first Star Wars figures ever offered to the public. In addition to discussing the history of the Junior Achievement Program and the archive miniature figures, Ron took us behind his work desk to give us insight into how he researches and writes these articles. And we ended our chat with a look at the tribute he published for super collector John Kellerman, who passed away last year. John was the author of the essential collecting guide Star Wars Vintage Action Figures, and changed the way people collected for the past two decades since the book was first published. Ron and I plan to reconnect after the Pennsylvania trip for a conversation about the articles he wrote during the rest of the year. I was curious to hear how he approached these articles. One spotlighted the unlicensed lightsabers produced between 1977 and 1978, as a response to the public's desire to own this new and novel accessory, and to capitalize on the demand while Kenner toiled away on a Lucasfilm-licensed model. The other gave context to the controversy around the early bird certificate, and how it was received by retailers and consumers. Both articles were interesting reads this year, and are some of my favorite collector-related published pieces. And I really want to dive into them with Ron. 
I also want to ask him about the Lancaster weekend and about meetups in general, to hear what they mean to him. And I have a few larger collecting questions for him, and I'm curious to hear his take on them. So join me for a conversation with Ron about the stories behind the stories. So, Ron, I heard a rumor that you're – I wanted to address this because I think it's kind of important for the collecting community. I heard a rumor that you are starting to sell off your amazing collection um, and that you are, you've been slowly buying up Amish paintings, <laughs> especially ones that are, that are first carved and then, and then uh, painted. Is there any truth to that? Um, yes. You know, I'm starting to, um, let things go. I'm going to open up my place, uh, right after the holidays here and, uh, everything's going to go with bargain, bargain prices. So I can buy Amish carved paintings for sure. Um, and then you're opening a, an Amish smorgasbord, uh, as well in your, in your home. Yes. They're just going to be, I'm not sure if the Amish will accept me, but I'm going to do my best to talk my way into the community and then, um, I'll just go from there. I'll be rich before long. I'll be, you know, a rich Amish, uh, you know, dealer of, of various things Amish related. Perfect. I, I mean, I think that that's a good path to take now. Uh, you, you've, you've, you've mastered all of the Star Wars stuff and now you're ready for Amish living and, uh, and, and the, 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 the art world. Out, brother. Star Wars is played out after the book of Boba Fett. It's I'm going all Amish <laughs> out of the Star Wars thing. That's awesome. Okay, well, I wish you the best of luck on that. So uh, this makes for a very quick conversation. Then perfect. Uh, <laughs> I, did uh, no. those, I did, did love those paintings. Um, you know, I, I, you know that we saw. Uh, so I, I would certainly have loved to buy one of those. But it looks like we missed the boat on the paint on the, the carved paintings. The Zook carved paintings. Those are already very expensive. So yeah, and I I brought that up because um, we we hung out this weekend. We got to spend a weekend in Pennsylvania with about sixty of our friends, and uh, for for um, Mike DeStefano's annual Sithmas event. And um, so we went to his house, and and then that was Saturday. And then on Sunday, we all met up and went to a diner, and um, we saw we, we were with our friend FJD Robertus, and we saw these incredible carved paintings on the walls of the diner. And I believe you started to look them up, right? Yeah, I, I did some some research on them because they were both signed by different people with the last name of Zook, Z-O-O-K, and different first names. And then, you know, so I Googled it at the, at the restaurant. It turns out they're brothers. And then I did some more research when I got home, looking into what the prices on these things are. Cause... And what's the average price of one that either Abner or Aaron would pay. I don't know about average, but the article I saw, which was earlier from this year, just said that, you know, they were going for up to $40,000 a piece now. Um, and of course they were just sitting in that diner, the, the waiting, the lobby area. <laughs> and one of them had a little chip on it. And I'm like, man, even when I thought that it, they were worth maybe a couple of thousand, I was like, man, these probably shouldn't be sitting here where people can bump into them. Yeah, originally I thought you said that they were maybe eighteen hundred or two thousand dollars, and I was like, "Wow, that's incredible!" And then as well, we started, if they were that, not to say cheap, but if they were at that price, like I would maybe just go try to buy a couple of them because they just seem really cool to me and like the kind of thing like like folk art stuff like that, that could take off in the future. 
Um, but yeah, it looks like the people are already buying those things as collectibles. So forty thousand is a little a little outside of my whatever I'd want to spend on that. I was thinking more than four thousand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a, a restaurant that closed earlier this year um, called Good and Plenty, and I think they had 15 pieces. Um, it was an Amish uh, smorgasbord, and um, and there, you know, there there's another place called Shady Maple, and they have a really large one as well. Um, but there are a number of restaurants and a number of attractions around Lancaster that have these works by the Zook brothers. Um, it was really nice to see, really nice to learn about that. It seems um, like it was a thing for local establishments to have you know in the waiting room or something and is it they're so cool to see uh, but i just love stuff like that you know stuff that's kind of um outside the normal art world and it's just an unusual folk art thing because i i've never seen works that were quite like that they're sort of like you know like a donatello relief sculpture but with a lot more depth to it right because so from a distance you can even see that there's like dimensional dimensionality to it um yeah, I thought they were pretty cool. Like, I I would have loved to have to own one of those things. Yeah, they're they're um they're carved in an arc, you know, where the center comes close to you, so it it automatically creates a sense of perspective. Um, but they're first they're they're hand carved out of wood, and then the the pieces like horses and and trees are all painted. Um, and it, it really is, it's something I've never seen before. And, um, I, the, the Donatello, um, parallel is a pretty good one. Yeah. But I, I think in it, Donatello is doing it all in like cast bronze for the most part, but, um, and these things are described as carved wood, but looking at them closely, I'm pretty sure it's like carved wood plus multimedia, you know, like some of those trees are like wires that are incorporated in there and the figures look like they may have been like epoxy or something. Um, right. So there's a lot of work that went into those things. Like I, I just, I thought that was really cool. Like I, I couldn't stop looking at them when we were standing there. So, but yeah, if, if anybody finds a nice one for a couple thousand, you might have a buyer, but 40,000, I'm probably out. <laughs> it's already too understandable. Expensive. Yeah. But it, it's nice to know that they've achieved, you know, recognition. Um, I believe both of them have passed away um, since, but um, you know, their, their legacy lives on and people love their work. Yeah, absolutely. And last year when we went to that same place, when we went to Mike's house, I don't, I don't think you were there. Um, I was not. But uh, I'm pretty sure that those things were not hanging there. So that, that place has hung those in the lobby, I think, in the last year. Um, but uh, I kind of wanted to ask the story behind them, but the, the lady was so mean that I didn't think it was <laughs> a while. She's already yelling at us about gossip knows what. So um, I think I would have avoided that one. Yeah, uh, I think you made the safe choice. Uh, we we did get to sit in and enjoy a nice breakfast. Um, what was the the Sithmas weekend in Pennsylvania like for you? Oh, it's just um kind of thing I like, you know, just basically very low key. Um, Mike is a great host. He's got a great place. You know, it's large enough to host a lot of people comfortably. Uh, it's a great time to just you know have a drink and sit and and kind of talk with people like yourself and Yehuda and the Rileys and, you know, whoever else was down there. We saw some of our Canadian friends, including Jim McCallum, who I haven't seen in, man, over a decade. Um, so, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. I, that, I, I like stuff like that. Um, even though I would say from a collecting perspective, it's not like we, we saw Mike's collection and, and whatnot, which I'd seen before. Um, but it's not like you're sitting down there just talking 12 backs or whatever. It's basically just kind of a 
Christmas party in the sense that you're just seeing friends and talking about whatever. And uh, I like that a lot. So it was fun. It was the first club meetup that I've been to. I think that was a multi club meetup. So we had people from Pennsylvania, um, people from the Ohio collectors club, the DC area, and then our empire state club. And we had the Canadian contingent come down as well too, or the Canadian Calvary. So yeah, that's right. That That's a good point. He's he's Mike is in a good spot to facilitate you know, club overlap. Um, so I, I was glad to see people from various regions uh, showing up there. And I got a Baby Yoda sweater. So, I mean, what, what can you, what beats that? That was one of my favorite moments from the entire thing. Um, just very quickly. So we we did what's called a White Bantha um, gift exchange. People know it as um, White Elephant. But um, so you went up toward the end and you picked up a, a present off the table. You opened it up. And it was a Baby Yoda sweater. And Ron, I know you are a super fan of, of Baby Yoda, but my favorite part was that um, it was just an impromptu thing, but pe- like everyone started chanting, put it on, put it on. And as you're standing up there, they they made you put it on and, and show it off, um, which I thought was pretty cool. And, and so I think you had it on for what, about five minutes? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Full disclosure, on the way home, I did stop and I traded it for an Amish trucker cap. Congratulations. Hey, that's a smart way. <laughs> not, not to insult anybody, but you know, I'm out of Star Wars now. Yes, yes. And you need you you want your your place, your new smorgasbord to look very uh, uniform. So good idea. Yeah. Um, it, it was uh it was pretty funny. Yeah. I did put it on for like five minutes. <laughs> so that that was one of my favorite moments. Um is there a moment or a memory that that stands out to you from the event? Oh, not off the top of my head. I mean, it was just kind of fun in general. Um, but yeah, I don't have like a moment that, that pops into memory. Uh, but one will probably come to me like as we're talking like, <laughs> minutes later. That's okay. I know you mentioned that you had gotten to see Jim McCallum for the first time in really years. Um, was there anyone else that you had connected with that you hadn't seen in a while that you were happy to, to see. It. Um, so it was, weirdly enough, I hadn't seen James Gallo in, in a while. I don't know how that works out. You know, James is a good friend of mine. We go way, way back. Um, but I hadn't really spent time with him in, in a bit. So it was, it was fun to see him uh, for sure. Uh, trying to think if there was, you know, most of the other people I've seen, I've seen recently, you know, Jonathan McElwain was down there and he's always fun to, to, to chat up and, um, I guess one nice thing I remember to answer your question now that it's occurred to me was I, I, I was able to sell an item to Steve Renzi that he had been wanting. And, you know, I had an extra for a while and I just decided to, I didn't need this thing. So, um, you know, it's always, he, he, he was excited to get it. So it's always nice to part with something that someone is excited to get from you. So I guess that's a, a good memory from the, from the event. And Steve Renzi is a fellow Pennsylvania club member, and he's also a huge Chewbacca collector. So yeah. I'm sure um, I got to see the item, and it's uh, it's a fantastic one. I actually learned about it through the archive, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but I'm, I'm glad it wound up in his collection. I know he's thrilled. Yeah, I mean those um, those factor standees with the Kenner branding on them were something that I don't know if I discovered. I think Todd Chamberlain and I were kind of both on the inside track on those. And I did a lot of work on trying to confirm what they were over the years. So yeah, I don't think most people were really aware of those until we published them on the archive, but uh, you know, I, I had two sets and so 
and Steve is a Chewbacca guy. So he, and I don't want to ship those things. Right? So it was fun <laughs> to bring it down and hand it off to him and made him happy. He made me happy. So. So it was a standee of Chewbacca. Uh, it, I think it was made in what, 1977, 78? Yeah. Um, Factors was one of the first licensees, right? So they had the, I don't even know what their license consisted of, but basically posters and cardboard decorative items. They had jewelry, which they sub-licensed to Weingaroff. They did buttons and stickers and things. So they were an early licensee and they made four, ah, they're not really life-size. I think people probably call them life-size, but the Chewbacca is certainly not Chewbacca-sized. It's it's large, but it's not quite Chewbacca-sized. Um, but they're big cardboard cutouts that you could stand up Um and they made four of them. It was Vader, Chewbacca, uh, C-3PO, and R2-D2. They did some ones, other ones later, but the 77 ones are those four. Um, and, obvi- and honestly, uh, the first time we heard about them was, I think, from someone in Cincinnati who said that, yeah, some of the first displays, we just bought those factors pieces and sent them to stores. And um, the fact that uh, some turned up both posters and standees with the Kenner logo on them sort of um, confirm that idea. And then I actually managed to find in the files of the guy who did most of the store display stuff for Kenner, um, you know, reference to those factors things. And later on, I found a factor sell sheet that indicated that they actually sold those standees. They marketed them to, to retailers and to licensees as store display products. Um, so potentially not just Kenner use them as store displays, but other, other outlets as well. Um, but Kenner is the only one we know about, at least, that actually rebranded them. They put Kenner stickers on them. Uh, so they're basically very early store displays. So if you're into store displays or the, the marketing of the line, they're kind of key items. Uh, even though they don't have unique Kenner artwork, you know, obviously they're just the factors graphics. Uh, but I like early stuff and I like obscure things with stories like that. So that I've always been attracted to those, those pieces. Um, but, you know, Steve being a Chewbacca collector, you know, to have an early item that's obviously Chewbacca focused and ties into the Kenner line is, is kind of cool. So I was glad that he was able to get that. It's always nice to see a friend pick up a piece from another friend. And uh, and that was a massive piece. I can understand why you wouldn't want to ship it. <laughs> yeah, it's large and I don't want to be bothered with shipping. <laughs> sure. To, to um, our friend Steve when you see him in person. So that was good. And, and our friend Sky Payne already has one. So I guess we just, Brad Porton and I is our other Chewbacca guy. So I guess <laughs> maybe the next, if I find another one, I'll ask Brad if he wants it, but yeah, you'll have to bring it to the next Sithmas event uh, next year. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many more of those there are to find, but uh, you know, I already had two sets. So, well, I would believe that that would stand out um, for Steve as a, a huge pickup for the year. Um, do you have a favorite Star Wars pickup of the year? Did you pick up anything that was meaningful for your collection? Of the year. Well, one thing I did get is I, I, I had, I mentioned the Factors posters with the Kenner logo. So in addition to the standees, Factors did at least four posters of their commercial posters that were available to the public. You know, at least four of those were released by Kenner, also with Kenner logos on them. And I, I found two additional ones this year. So that was a good find. I was glad to find those. Um, what else? Yeah, that, that, that's the one that springs to mind. I, I didn't buy a ton of stuff this year. Uh, you know, I was able to buy some of the more, you know, some of the early heritage, not heritage, I guess you shouldn't say heritage, archive miniatures, Neville Stocking figures that we talked about last time. 
uh, I was able to find some of those, including some for Yehuda. You know, Yehuda didn't have the band, and I found almost a complete band. Oh, that's incredible. Did you find them all in one shot, or did it take yeah, time lady, over time? A lady who had some other miniatures, I had contacted her, and she she's like, I think I have those band band members. And you know, over a period of a couple of weeks, she kept going through her stuff, and she finally found all all I think it's five five band members and I needed one so I kept one and the rest of them I just gave to Yehuda so uh you know it's it was that that was a pretty satisfying find because I've only ever seen you know a few sets of those band members before uh so that that was fun too you know to get those it was so enjoyable to go through that article and to really understand what those pieces were because I guess I had them confused with the Rao Partha miniatures yeah which is also a misnomer, I think. You know, we get the heritage is the wrong thing to call the archive miniatures, and the Ral Partha is probably the wrong thing to call those Kenner ones. But yeah, for years, somebody, I don't know who it was, it might have been in Tomart or something, had put out this idea that Ral Partha, which is a micro collection or is a miniature manufacturer in the Cincinnati area that they had sculpted those conceptual micro-collection figures for Kenner. So forever they were called the Ralph Partha figures. But I think that's probably not true. I, I think that Kenner went to Ralph Partha in some capacity, but I don't think they sculpted those figures. Um, but yeah, people call them the Ralph Partha figures. But uh, they're similar to the Neville Stockin figures in, in, the, in the sense that they're very, what, arts and crafty, like that you can, there's a handmade quality to them that comes across. Uh, they don't seem like overly polished, but yeah, they're not actually related at all. No. And, and they, they all look sculpted. Like that's, that's what really stuck out to me about Neville's work. It looked like it was a work in progress and the essence was there. Um, yeah. as I mentioned to you this weekend, I'm, I'm now obsessed and I'm determined, uh, to pick up at least one of them. In well, when I see a couple weeks, maybe, maybe I can help you out. I'll, I'll, <laughs> but, um, I think that what you're picking up on is that, uh, you know, both of the quote unquote Ral Partha Kenner figures and the archive miniatures figures were sculpted at one to one scale, you know. So I don't think those things were done as little bits of wax or, or epoxy or whatever they sculpted them in. Um, whereas the Kenner ones, now you know why they did them four to one, right? So they did those big pieces to get that, that obviously handmade quality out of them because Kenner, being a big company, didn't want, you know, they wanted a polished look, right? So that's, a big part of why they did them at four to one. Uh, right. So if, if the actual pieces that they produced, the, the micro collection uh, miniatures were one inch tall, they would produce them at four times the size or they would sculpt them at four times the size in order to get the detail right. And then they would shrink them down. Yeah. So, and they obviously had pro sculptors work on them and they got the really polished look they were looking for. But uh, those other ones were sculpted at one to one, I'm sure. And you know, it, there's more they, i think they're great but there's more of a there's less polish right it, they don't seem as finished and that's kind of one of the fun things about them is that they have a little bit more funkiness to them so yeah there's a charm to them definitely and it's nice to know that they, they all came from one person too yeah as far as the archive miniatures ones go um yeah it's very interesting to to think about him sitting i, I would love to have photos of him sitting there sculpting all those figures because he did a bunch it was in 77 right so right after the movie's out and yes you know he's sitting there sculpting a complete band and you know the bantha and all this stuff it, it, it was just kind of a fun story i really wish he would have sat for an interview it would have been a lot of fun but 
such as life. <laughs> um, is there a particular Star Wars piece that you don't own currently, but would love to own someday, whether it's in someone's collection or it's, it's just it's out there waiting to be discovered or purchased? Oh, man, there's tons. You know, there's just like... I've never been the kind of person who just focused, like there's some collectors who are just like, I need this item and that's all they think about. Right. And it's like, I've never been that kind of guy that seems a sure fire way to be disappointed as a collector. You know, I've always had like a scatter shot or like shotgun, you know, spread of, of what I was interested in. Because if you're just focusing on only one thing, like that's just a recipe for disappointment. So I've always had a broad range of things I was looking for, you know, that from expensive things all the way down to like things that aren't that expensive that are just, you know, like factors branded display, you know, Kenner branded factors displays or archive miniatures figures, you know, looking for these things, you know, those aren't necessarily super cheap, but they're not crazy expensive either. So, um, but as far as just Kenner things, look, I mostly collect Kenner stuff. So the things that I really want or have wanted for a long time, the power of the force store display is, is one thing that, you know, I'm a store display guy and that's one of the major ones I don't have. Uh, so that's certainly something that, that stands out that I would love to have. I'd love to have a Leia Bespin unproduced, you know, large size figure. Uh, I'll probably, at this point, you'll probably, I'll probably never get those cause they're just so extra astronomically expensive and rare, but you know, never say never, you know, years ago, one of the things I really wanted was the early bird pole display. And I ended up finding one, you know, I not paid a lot of money for it, but not, <laughs> not as much as I would pay from, uh, you know, Tom Derby or something like that. So I, you know, it was a in the wild, you know, so to say find, uh, so, you know, never say never, you never die. Someone might contact me and be willing to sell a power of the force, you know, thing for a good amount of money. That's not, not necessarily, you know, you know, send your kid to college money. Uh, but, you know, I, at the same time, I, I've kind of come to peace with the, fa- with the fact that I will probably never get some of those things. They're just, you know, we'll see. But, you know, they're not things that I'm going to be super upset if I never do get. But those are two things that pop to mind. I've been trading this year. I mostly, you know, I do, I do vintage carded figures and then I also do modern prototypes. And I found with the modern prototypes where we're at now, where most pieces are just completely locked away, um, the only way to access pieces are is really to trade. Um, so, I mean, there's always the chance that you could trade for some of these, right? Yeah, and really some of the better things I've acquired over the last, you know, five years have been trade items. So um, there's always that, yeah. Uh, although it's just, it gets harder and harder. I mean, it's just, especially in the prototype realm, there's just not that much stuff that's easily obtainable anymore. And if someone has a good item, it's going to hakes or something like that. Right. And that makes it extra difficult as well. Right. And a lot of times too, the way that we all collect, uh, we collect in runs. And so if you're looking for a specific piece, uh, the person who owns that piece may not want to give it up because it's part of a run. Yeah, that's true. Um, at least a lot of these things are locked up in collections as part of their quote unquote runs. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very hard or they're character collectors and it's very hard to shake them loose from people. Uh, but, you know, it, it's been like that for a while. So no, nothing new there. I was thinking about this recently and I wanted to ask you about it uh, because I've always admired your collection. And every time I've seen it, it's always hit me that 
you know, there's a point where you're collecting and stuff is is turning up and, you know, you're, you're, you're scooping stuff up as you go along. And then it, it hits a point, almost a, a peak, in which the amount of available stuff starts to slow down um, and, you know, it becomes harder to find the pieces that you want. And once you start to get a certain level of stuff too, you know, at that level, uh, maybe there are fewer items out there and a few items available. Um, when did collecting start to slow down for you? Oh, um, I would take it in that question in, in, in terms of, you know, specific veins of collecting, you know, so, you know, just in the prototype area, you know, I guess that's a major part of my collecting, you know, there was a, a major period there where, I acquired a lot of prototypes and that was probably 1997 through, I don't know, call it 2007 or probably a little bit later than that. But, you know, there's a 10 year period. Um, And I think in order to understand how that works, you'd have to uh, call it, I guess, distribution history of various, um, you know, various collectible uh, categories. Right. And so the, the reason there was a lot of prototypes coming into my collection during that period is just because that's when the, a lot of that stuff turned up. Uh, and I don't know if myself and others, if we recognized it then, I don't know if collectors now recognize it in hindsight, maybe they do if they're familiar with what, you know, the distribution history, like I said, but um, you know, that was just the period of time. Those things are rare enough where it's like once they come and they go and they get sucked into collections, that's it. Right. Uh, so that was the period that most of the sculptors who basically were the people who provided a lot of the sculpts as well as the hard copies that are out there today. A lot of them came through those, those collections of stuff that were sold by the sculptors and they all got, you know, bought out in that 10 year period. Um, and so there was a period where if you're interested in hard copies, you could buy hard copies and they weren't really that expensive. They were expensive for the time, but there was obtainable, you know, it was like, okay, I I would say the earth had some of those, right. You know, so they got some of those, it wasn't really through a sculptor, but it was through somebody else, but it was in that same time period. And they, uh, the earth was an outfit in Cincinnati that did, they had a, they had a brick and mortar and they also did mail order, but they did an auction um, that was advertised in, I think, Action Figure Digest. And uh, it was for just a bunch of hard copies. And I th- want to say that prices were like between $700 and maybe 2000 at the top end for complete painted hard copies, which is like, I mean, you just don't see those for sale now. What uh, kind of figures did they offer? Oh, man, that was dozens. You know, there was like, I don't, there wasn't any Star Wars, but there was Empire through Jedi. There may have even been some Power of the Force ones in there. I can't recall. Um, but I know I got a Reese, a painted Reese in that sale. And I also ended up with a Black Bespin Guard. And I also had the Rebel Commando for a time. I, I since sold it. And even when I saw, like, so I sold the Rebel Commando. That was stupid, right? I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, and that was probably, I don't know, 2008. And I was probably sold it for 4000 or less. Uh, and that, that seemed like a good price at the time, but now it'd be stupid. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I mean, the stuff was just out there and it was available. Um, and especially like 
you know, myself and my friends who were going to Cincinnati and buying things like there was just loads of stuff to buy through us because we couldn't keep it all. Uh, it was like try to recoup our costs by selling these things on the on the, the news groups or whatever. And so that's where a lot of that stuff, people just bought stuff back then, even parts. There was a lot of hard copy parts like, oh, here's an arm that doesn't go with anything. And it was like cheap, you know, like 100 bucks or whatever. Um, and you just don't, that stuff is just not around anymore. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in collecting, you just, you just don't have opportunities. You know, there was a period there where it was like, you could acquire a bunch of stuff and then that stopped. And it mostly because it stopped at the source, you know, very occasionally somebody, I mean, I think Rick Hughes was the last sculptor who still had some things. He refused to sell to us way back in the day and he sold, to some other guys later on. And so some stuff hit the market through him. Um, you know, that was a few years back. And then there was the find in, in England of like, I think Vectus handled it. And then the guy who was a Palatoy employee, he ended up having more hard copies than were sold through Vectus. And, and those hit the market, although they went quietly to different people. Um, but, you know, now those things are like finding like hen's teeth, whereas back then it was like there was a steady stream. Um, and it's mostly because that's when, you know, Kenner employees were retiring and just getting rid of their stuff. Um, you know, I bought stuff from through Tom Derby and Cloud City Collectibles. Like that's, I got my one of my favorite things is a I have like a preliminary sketch for a 12 back the 12 back um, card design. And, you know, that was, I bought that through Tom Derby at Celebration. And, uh, you know, the price I paid for it seems ridiculous. Now it was expensive then, but it seems ridiculous now. And even to have the ability to buy something like that now, it's just hard to wrap your mind around because uh, they got sucked into collections and those people aren't giving them up probably. Um, but then it was like those were coming out of the original owners and filtering into the hobby. So it was like there was just a continual stream of things that you could buy you know, even if you're, I've never been a big proof card guy, but if you wanted to buy proof cards for a continuous 10 year period or so, Steve Denny just had them available. You could just go to him and buy whatever. And what was the uh, average price of a proof card during those yeah. 10 years? I want to say, I, paid, range. I want to say I paid like 150 for empire and 250 for return of the Jedi. I think I bought like, I had like 31 back. Leia and Luke Bespin, Leia Bespin and Luke Bespin that I bought from him. And it was probably like $200 a piece on those or 150, something like that. I remember the Jedi ones are more expensive because Steve had less of them. Uh, and I, I had them for a little while and just got rid of them because I just wasn't that interested. Mm -hmm. But, and then he sold them all at celebration. He, you know, you could just walk up and buy, you know, handfuls of proof cards for not that much money. But once those filtered out, like Steve was out of them and they were just into the hobby, the prices just started to go crazy because they weren't available anymore. And that kind of increased collector interest in owning runs of them and whatnot. Um, but for years, you could just buy them and it was no big deal. Uh, so as far as slow down goes, I would say, you know, once you get into around 2010, it's just like the whole um, rush to for me and other people probably too to buy these great prototype items just sort of tapered out. I mean, there just wasn't much to buy anymore, and it became more about trying to trade, you know, between people or buy things, you know, quietly when you needed them between people. Uh, but there just wasn't as nearly as many opportunities to buy really great prototype items after that. 
I'm seeing a parallel now in the modern Star Wars prototype world. Um, I don't think that there is uh, as big of a community that's looking for these pieces, but you know, even though it's a smaller one, um, it's a pretty intense one. And I think collectors have been picking them up, especially within the last 10 years. And I've noticed in the, in the past two years, a lot of the sources have dried up. There isn't as much available, especially this year. And most pieces are now locked away. Um, and we even, you know, we for a while, um, there was a, a pretty good amount offered on eBay even mm-hmm. um, through some China-based sellers. And and those sources have disappeared as well, too. So it's just interesting to see now. I, I've, I've realized, like for me, over the last, say, year or so, um, that my collecting for modern prototypes is starting to slow down. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that'll that'll happen. I mean, these things are finite as far as what's available. And that's not to say there won't be a find of this or that. People are saying, Oh, you say it's not available anymore. And then there was a find. Yeah, I get it. There could be somebody who turns up who's got a few things, but in general, it's like the tap gets, you know, the the faucet gets turned off and it just kind of stops. And I think that's why you saw around 2010 or so, you saw a lot of the vintage Star Wars collectors start to go into other areas. You know, I started buying posters pretty hard. Um, and you know, other people started buying comic book art and it's just because it wasn't, you just couldn't buy the the good prototype items in the same way you could for the the previous 10 years. Um, and you know, the production stuff is, you know, that's less limited by nature, but even that has changed. I mean, it used to be, man, you could hardly go to a flea market or, anything without seeing vintage star wars in some capacity now i go to these giant flea markets and i see almost nothing not even loose figures you know what i mean uh so that has become much more scarce over time as well uh you know the carded figures you know all the seems like most of the nice carded figures have found their way into the market um although we did have that big find that was it hakes advertising that recently or Uh, morphe auction morphe's um yeah, I mean, so there's still caches of this stuff, but it's not like it was. Like, man, in the 90s, you could go to toy shows and just buy any Return of the Jedi carded figures for like $20 a piece, just about. You know, it's just like they were just sitting in there, not even like, just in comic book long boxes, just like tons of that stuff around. Uh, it's not like that anymore. It's like, you know, it's most of the nice ones have been sucked into collections or they've been graded and their people are going to be selling them or whatnot. So it's just, there's not nearly the supply that there was in the old days. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's a shame too, because uh, having that, that steady stream around where you could pick up something um, made, made collecting more fun, especially when it wasn't, the, the prices weren't as stressful. Um, yeah. It's different now. It's, it's gone from trying to hunt things down in like in the wild for a lack of a better term or in, you know, firsthand in some kind of random antique shop. Now it's like you have almost no hope of finding a halfway decent vintage item at some random thing. It just doesn't really happen. Um, it'd be like finding, you know, I don't, I don't know comic book terminology, but you know, the, 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 the original Spider-Man comic in some random comic shop, it's just not going to happen because <laughs> everybody knows what it is. And it's like, they're not going to stick it out there. Um, but uh, you know, even put carded figures aside, right. And just look at, you know, boxed vehicles and, and play sets and whatnot, you know, those things, a lot of those, you just don't see sealed, nice sealed, you know, Kenner items anymore. Uh, 
and you haven't for quite a while. I mean, once in a while, like something, even on like deal or no deal or eBay, like you don't see like a really nice sealed original TIE fighter, you know, that that's kind of like, if someone has one, it's probably going to an auction or some big dealer or something. Cause it's just, those things are just not popping up. Like you see beat up ones, but really nice ones. They're not very much around. And that wasn't really the case, you know, years ago, like you, you had a decent chance of buying like just boxed or unopened Kenner toys um, in really nice condition without having to break the bank, you know, now that they all seem to be graded and they're in auctions and whatnot. So it's a whole different, you know, atmosphere. That was the warning sign for me that the the hobby was changing. Um, when mom and pop dealers and other amateur dealers um, had items or were talking about items at, at their table and would say like, yeah, we, we picked this TIE fighter up and we're going to you know send it to be graded. And I'm, yeah. I'm thinking like two months ago, you didn't even know that a grading company existed. <laughs> But. Yeah, and that grading stuff, you know, I love Tom Derby. He's a good friend of mine. But, um, you know, what he and he's the guy who really kind of established it. But once you establish the, the whole grading thing in a hobby, like it definitely changes the character of it. I don't know. I don't know if it's better or for worse, but the, it changes a lot of things. And certainly it took a while, but that that whole ecosystem has really changed the way people, you know, you know, collect in a lot of ways. And yeah, I mean, you'd have to be stupid nowadays to get a really high grade sealed item and not just go get it graded because by, I mean, that's just how you get the big money. Right. Um, so it would be foolish not to, even if you don't necessarily care for graded items and I don't particularly like you would be rather foolish to not get it graded. Right. Because there is such a premium. Yeah. And that's what people, a lot of the newer collectors, that's what they expect. Like you hear them talk about buying, ungraded stuff is like weird you know they're like i don't i don't collect raw <laughs> they call it raw <laughs> like comics yeah yeah and you're like okay I, I never really had that bias in any way and but there's a lot of newer collectors that's what they want so i mean you have to sort of go with it go with the flow man you can't really push back too much okay so when you open up your new store and you're selling Amish paintings, you might want to include some graded boxed items as well, too. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the Amish are big in grading, so I figured that out over the last <laughs> They won't buy anything unless it's graded. <laughs> Understandable. Um, so in our last conversation, you and I talked about uh, the writings that you had done for the Star Wars Collector's Archive in the first half of the year. And uh, for this conversation, I really I wanted to focus on uh, the the two main articles that you wrote for the second part of this year, um, the first the first one's called "Turn On Your Force Light: The Great Knockoff Lightsaber Wave of 1977 to 1978." Uh, you published that in May of of 2022 on the Star Wars Collectors Archive blog. Um, what made you look into the world of knockoff lightsabers? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's funny you write these things and sometimes it's like you don't even realize where they come from. It's I know it's you would think that oh this was like a um an epiphany you had, but I guess it's in a way at least subconsciously it's been built up over time. And a lot of these things I end up writing about are things that I've been curious about for the last, you know, I've been collecting close to 30 years or whatever it is, and they're things that have been in the back of my mind uh, uh, as being an interesting 
category, not necessarily to write about, but just to learn about and, and to collect. So I guess I've always sort of been interested in the whole bootleg saber phenomenon. And this would be, you know, Kenner didn't release their inflatable licensed lightsaber until 1978, which, you know, sounds like it was, that's a quick turnaround, but really the movie came out in, you know, spring to summer of 77. And that, that leaves a holiday season without licensed lightsabers. So you had quite a few of these knockoff, you know, you know, AKA bootleg um, unlicensed lightsaber products that hit in late 77 um, that are fun to collect. Right. So I was always aware of the force beam uh, as being one, cause I'd seen the ads for it. I was always really interested in that. And, um, but I was also aware that there was these other things that were made and a lot of them I had sort of patchy knowledge of, and, you know, one of the products that I had stumbled across was the SST laser sword, which, um, was a, you know, it's basically just like most of these things are flashlights with a plastic tube attached to them. And that was what the, the laser sword was, but it came in this big, long graphical box with like, blue box with like starfield graphics and these awesome like 70s block lettering in yellow saying sst laser sword and this picture of a kid on there he's got like long hair and he just looks like he looks like a 70s badass kid is what he looks like and (laughs) um he's got he's doing this like sort of pose and um and and i knew that came with a um a booklet that uh kind of gave context to the SST laser sword, like put it positioned it within this sort of fantasy realm where it's like the, the booklet provided storylines and, and what kids, you know, could imagine themselves to be when they bought this SST laser sword. That's basically, I had intended to write something about the SST laser sword, whether it was a blog post or an, or an archive database entry, because I always thought it was a cool story. So I guess that's the genesis of it was wanting to do something on that product. Um, and so while I was looking for something else in a newspaper archive, I stumbled across um, an ad for the SST laser sword. I was like, oh, man, this is cool. So then I just started searching for ads for the, the laser sword, and I found a bunch of different ones with wild graphics and stuff. So then the idea became to write something that tied in, that, that talked about the laser sword as well as all of the, the, the cool advertising stuff that was put out about it. Um, and then basically in searching for that, I found these other lightsaber stories, right? Cause I started searching for bootleg or not bootleg lightsaber, but you know, lightsaber and looking in specifically 1997, 1977 and seeing if I could find what had hit during that time. And I, I stumbled across a bunch of other products. So then at that point I was like, well, it'd be cool to just write something about all the stuff I know about that was released in late 77. So that's kind of how it developed. I like that you gave us an overall history of these bootleg lightsabers, because I, I think most of us um, had one at some point. And, um, and you know, the SST one is great, and we'll go into that a little more. I have a few questions about that one. But um, but it was, it was interesting to see all of the different types, and I had never realized that there was really more than one. Um, I grew up with one and thinking that that was the knockoff, and then, you know, Kenner released theirs. Um, but you you mentioned something interesting in the article, and, and I wanted to see if how you you came upon this. So you said that Kenner released eight items during the holiday season of 1977. How did you figure out which ones Kenner produced at that time? Oh, oh that's pretty easy. And it, I think if you go on that blog post, like there may be a link to an earlier piece I wrote about 
stuff released in 1977. Yes. Um, so yeah, that was a blog post that I, I basically had the idea. I'd written, I've written a number of things about Kenner in 1977, including one of the earliest blog posts I did was one that was kind of like, I think it's called something of a misconception, you know, some kind of an unfortunate misconception is the title or something like that. And uh, basically the idea that people, and I run into this all the time, including like I've been on a couple documentaries and things and the, the people that, and they, people ask about the early bird certificate package. Cause that's kind of part of the Cole Kenner lore. That's one of the things people know. And the story is always, Oh, Kenner screwed up and they, they didn't get toys to market in time. And so they had to release this certificate. And I think people don't realize that Kenner did not screw up in any way, shape or form. Um, they did not sign a license with, with um, Lucasfilm and Fox until like March or April of 77, which is a month before the movie came out. So there's basically no chance that plastic action figures would have hit for the holidays in 77. It was just not possible. They weren't even on board as a licensee and that wasn't their fault. You know, I don't think it was pitched to them until, you know, late winter of 77. So there's no way they could have made toys for 77, at least, you know, plastic action figures. Um, so that, so I've done a series of posts about that um, just because it's always fun to me when there's like this, this idea that people have that's sort of wrong and you can kind of, kind of build off that and be like, well, this is what really happened, you know, and, and kind of show people. Um, so one of the follow-up posts I wanted to do was just, well, what was released in 77? And the, the end for that would be the, I mean, kind of released a catalog, right? We talked last time about how the importance of catalogs in sort of, documenting things yes and it is it's always important to go back to the original the catalog or the ads or whatever to find out what was really out there although sometimes you know you know catalogs do have stuff that wasn't produced but generally speaking that shows you what was what was made um and there's a products for delivery for fall 1977 catalog that has the style c poster artwork on the cover and kenner put that out to retailers and i have one of those and I also have the original order sheet that Kenner put out to retailers. So, I mean, the order sheet shows you what you could order as a, as a retailer from Kenner for the holiday season in 77. Um, and those items are on there, right? So there's basically paper-based items for the most part that they were able to get out. Um, and so the, the, the items were, you know, the early bird certificate package it's, itself, which allowed you to mail away for figures to come later. There were... Um, four different puzzles, right? So that brings you to five. I don't know if you count the puzzles as one or two items or five or four items. It's four items. So there were the puzzles. Um, there was the plaints set, which is a large poster set that you could paint. And there was dip dots, which was a smaller poster set that you could, that was like watercolor based. Um, is that all of them? Am I missing one? And there was one board game. Oh, the board game, yes. And the board game was the only thing that um, Kenner was contractually re- required to to make, right? So when they signed the license, like if Star Wars had bombed, Kenner would have just released the board game to to that was they were legally required to do that, and they probably would have just been out because they're not gonna they're not gonna make a bunch of stuff for a movie that bombed, right? Um, so if worse came to worse, Kenner would have just made the board game. So that in, in effect, that's the original item. In a lot of ways, that's like the 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 er release that's the er licensed Kenner star Wars item is that board game. Cause that's the one thing they were officially legally obligated to release. 
Um, and so those are the items that were released in 77. So if you were going to get Kenner Star Wars in 1977, that's basically what you had um, to receive. Uh, and I don't know if people realize that, like, that those items were the only ones. So I, th- I thought that was an interesting article just about what – and I tied it in with like some of the early licensed um, – uh, advertising stuff that Kenner put out as well, including those factors pieces, because I thought it was a good tie-in. Um, so anyway, yeah. that, that's that's the seventy-seven releases piece of it. I thought that was fascinating, and you're right; it does give people, I think, a, a, a stronger context of what really was available. Um, I was yeah, curious, just, just real quick too. I didn't bring this up, sorry, but um, as I was researching something else, I found several newspaper articles early referring. From, this is retailers being interviewed by local papers saying that one of the things that Kenner was making available in addition to the eight items we just talked about was the toothbrush, the electric toothbrush. So, and that was interesting to me because that wasn't released and it's not in the order forms. And I don't think it was out in fall 77, but that's just an interesting thing. Maybe I'll write something about that in the future, just that for at least a part of the time, Kenner was talking it up to retailers as the toothbrush being among that group. So it would have been nine, but I think that was canceled for whatever reason and pushed back to 78. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, and I, I think essentially, you know, uh, something like a toothbrush, if you went for a very general design, they probably had something, you know, already created, um, yeah. a, a standard toothbrush already created that they could have just slapped a, an image on. It was, um, yeah, it was a bionic a six million dollar man product and there i did an article on the electronic toothbrush electric toothbrushes and that's on the blog as well so if you want to read up on that but i think that might be why it wasn't released in 77 and this ties into my article on um the whole early bird thing which i guess we're going to talk about later but i think kenner got so much bad press about the early bird kit that they probably didn't release that toothbrush because it was just a recycled $6 million man thing from like the previous year. And that's probably just another thing they didn't want people complaining about. <laughs> that's my guess and why it was delayed and not released in 77. That would make sense. Cause there was a lot of controversy around the early bird certificate. That's on, yeah. Uh, but Kenner has a history of taking items. I mean, we've seen this with even like the, the toy vans that they created. Um, I think it was like the, the rip and pull uh, vans. Um, but uh, where they've they've taken items that are already created for other lines and then they repurpose them for a line like Star Wars, I, I'm just curious to know why why they didn't take something like a, a simple sword and transfer that to a lightsaber. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, of course, all the things that they released, you know, I called it recycling. I've heard label slapping as well. But if you Google recycling of the force that'll bring up my old article on all the stuff that they repurposed but every time they repurposed something it wasn't from other toy lines it was from a it was from other toy lines but it wasn't from other toy companies right so it was like in-house recycling um and i don't think they had a product that they could have just thrown on the market um like that that would have suited of course they could have just done what all the bootleggers did which is just buy a bunch of flashlights and put a you know, a, a, a plastic tube on the end of it. My guess is that they had safety concerns with that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, some of those were prototyped in that way with just a plastic tube. But the one that they eventually released was inflatable. And obviously that's to prevent injury. Of course, 
1980, they went back to the plastic tube with the forced lightsaber, but maybe there was a change in safety concerns at, at Kenner. But I can't imagine that, that inflatable one, the history of that has to be tied into safety concerns, because otherwise, why would you release a, an inflatable saber? Uh, but yeah, I don't know the history, but I would assume that there were safety issues there. Um, but by delaying it to 78, they allowed all of these bootleg ones to proliferate. Right. And that brings me to my favorite quote of the article you wrote here. And you said, fortunately, Americans are plucky, entrepreneurial, and perhaps most crucially, somewhat dismissive of copyright law. In the waning days of 1977, they rose to the challenge and marketed their own damn lightsabers. This is the story of their efforts. Yeah. As I was looking through some of those articles and really the article, when I saw that article about the one kid, I think he's from Michigan, who kind of... John Joyce. Okay, John Joyce, with him and his dad, who kind of just came up with their own saber and sold it to local stores. Um, I was like, I have to write something about this. This is too cool. I'd never heard that. And I found mo- that was an AP story, so it was in multiple papers. Um, and I just love that. It's just kind of like, there's something just really American and sort of small town about that. You know, some kid, his dad owns a hardware store, you know, gets an idea to make a lightsaber, and then they go out and they sell like several hundred, several tens of thousands to local businesses that they make a lot of money on on Christmas of 77. It's just such a great story. Uh, and I love the newspaper articles that show that kid. And, um, you know, that was a lot of fun learning about that. Yeah, so there was, you included an article from the Detroit Free Press uh, from 1977 where it talked about John Joyce, 12 years old. And he just he looked at the situation and he said, why can't a lightsaber be made from a simple flashlight? Um, so he created the first one, the Star Force Ray. Um, his father's his father owned a plastics manufacturing company called Stackall, and then they they basically took a door cell flashlight, put a tube uh, connected to the the uh, top end of it, and um, that light would go through the tube and would look like a lightsaber. Um, in fact, the Detroit Free Press says selling for five ninety eight, the toy consists of nothing more than a flashlight with a long plastic tube attached to reflect the light. Yeah, and that's basically what it was. Um, and you know, and the kid got some good newspaper coverage. The family must have taken him to a professional photographer, him and his sister, it looks like, and gotten like a publicity image made, including with like airbrushed sparkle effects on the saber. Um, and Pete Vilmer was the guy. He he had that publicity still that he picked up. You know, Pete helped me with a lot of the stuff in here. So big, big huge credit to Pete Vilmer who you know, help me with some of the, some of the, the products here. Um, but yeah, so I knew about that star force Ray from these articles, but I couldn't find a photo of it. And Steve, I mean, uh, Pete Vilmer is a guy who told me that, Oh, Steve Sansweet has one. So Steve Sansweet allowed me to use that one picture taken at Rancho. You can see that sitting on the gray painted floor there. Um, so that even though that there was a newspaper article and they sold tens of thousands of these things, it's actually a hard item to, to find the actual Star Force Ray. And I'm, I'm sure people, you know, kids use them and destroy them. I know I destroyed mine at some point in the mid 80s. Yeah, I'm sure. But if anyone ever turns one up, that that's a neat thing to have. Um, but right now, Steve Sands because the only one I'm aware of. It's also nice to know, it, it said in the article that uh, 20,000 examples were sold uh, okay, during yeah. the holiday season, and then there was an additional ten thousand being on hand uh, for January nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, so they're planning on still selling them in the in the in the spring. But um, 
Yeah, and I got a patent for it and everything. I dug up the patent. Um, it didn't get approved until 1980, but still, uh, it's pretty cool to, to get your name on a patent, especially as a kid. Absolutely. And and for something like Star Wars, too, or Star Wars adjacent. Um, yeah, he must have been a hero at his local school. <laughs> well, and with that picture as well, too. I mean, he was he was Luke Skywalker at that point. Picture the kid rolling up and like pulling out a box of those things out of his parents' pickup or whatever. <laughs> Telling them on the schoolyard or something. It's yeah. just like it's just a really fun story. Yeah, especially to be an entrepreneur as a child uh, in the in the late seventies. Yeah, it, it pays off if your dad is has a plastics manufacturing business. I'm sure. Absolutely, but the fact that the idea came from him and really how to put it together, I you know, I think you had mentioned the article he was working on a perpetual motion machine at the time too. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, God knows what would happen if that had panned out. <laughs> We'd all be living on Mars right now. Yeah. The next one uh, was the force beam. So that one came out and you, you said in the article that um, it was probably the most popular one. I think so. I mean, that's the one I've always known. And those turn up fairly regularly on eBay and there's ads, including even in in the UK for those. Um, So that one seems to be the most prevalent. Uh, And yeah, you'll find those and there's variations. Like some have a, a hand guard and some don't and I've seen ones without the branding on it. So I, I think that whoever was making those was just throwing them out there. And if, you know, they were missing pieces, they just, you know, maybe they ran out of stickers at one point and, you know, or the end caps at one point. So I think that there's quite a few variants on that one. There's a humorous thread that it's sort of, uh, it kind of travels under as you're reading the the article, and uh, you included a number of these advertisements. So on the East Coast, stores like Caldor and J.C. Penney were selling these force beams. Mm-hmm. But to me, it just seemed like either the producers of the force beam or the companies themselves, um, with with every advertisement, were just getting a little closer and a little closer to the actual Star Wars advertising where. As you said, I think the, the UK ad basically uses the Star Wars logo, you know, and, yeah. and dailies from California use the Hildebrandt art. And it was yeah. just like they were pushing to see, like, how much can we get away with and how much can we basically just point and say, this is a Star Wars item? Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the sub themes of this this um, article. And a few things, of a few pieces I've written is just um, how would Kenner folks have felt about this? You, you can imagine that just the the groans opening up the paper or whatever, people sending them clippings being like, Hey man, FYI, this is being sold in, in, you know, Utah and they're using the official graphics and stuff. This is just not what you want if you're at Kenner. (laughs) Um, But, and again, both this piece and the one that I guess we're going to talk about the early bird piece I did. uh, You know, I think one of the things that comes across there, especially if you read some of the, the articles that I, I capture in there, uh, it's just that retailers of that time, I don't think they really cared that this might upset Kenner, that this might be, a, you know, some sort of like copyright issue or something like uh, they there was a lot of angst about the early bird certificate. You know, their customers wanted Star Wars um, while these things are still out there. And I guess before I think Kenner or Fox or whatever eventually probably sued a lot of these, the force beam and, and, and folks like that. But in the few months where they were out there, like, I don't know if these retailers would have really cared, you know, until the legal judgment came down, it was just like, all right. And then, yeah, whoever, remember advertising was pretty local then. So whoever 
was managing the local dailies and put together the ads for the local paper. He goes and grabs a Hildebrandt image and sticks it in his ad. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, what you got in local stuff at that time. Right. And, and, you know, someone working at Lucasfilm um, probably does not have a computer network of everything that is available and is out there um, as far as these local vendors. And so, um, you know, going after people, I mean, that, that had to be an intense amount of work. It might take months. Yeah. And from the retailer perspective, it's like, well, you guys didn't release a lightsaber, so you guys can, you know, screw off on that one. Um, they got people demanding these things. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, like, like to go back to your earlier comment, they probably should have thrown some lightsaber product together and got it on the market. I don't know what the story is there, but Kenner kind of, to me, that seems like a missed opportunity because I don't think that would necessarily have taken that long to tool up anything. Um, it's just a simple product. And if there had been an official lightsaber out there, that would have been an enormous seller for Kenner for sure. Immensely, especially, you know, during the holiday season, maybe even in place of the action figures themselves where kids would want uh, an item from the movie that they that they had never seen before. You know, the, a, a lightsaber was a brand new idea. Yeah, and it's so obvious, just a light up thing, the tube. So, I mean, but the obviousness of it allowed all of these, these you know, fly-by-nighters to, to, you know, to make some money <laughs> in that brief period. Yes. Um, have you ever been able to find sales data for how it performed at retail? Um, the force beam? Yes. No, I didn't see anything about that. You know, I read through various articles on it, but, um, nothing related to that. You know, I kind of go into this a little bit in the article. I suspect that the, I think it was an LA based company. I expect that whoever was making those things probably was pretty crafty and were probably changing their company name and changing the product a little bit in order to stay one step ahead. And I don't think they would be out there releasing sales data to anybody. Um, the SST laser sword is a little bit different. Like those people, it seems like they did interviews and stuff, but I never saw anything directly from the makers of the force beam. Okay. But I mean, it was in so many stores that it had to do very well during that time. Yeah. You know, I think some of these, you know, once you get in with the national buyers of some of these big chains, you know, you're just selling, tons of them but they it was still on store shelves into 78 and later so even though they presumably got legal challenge like i don't you know i don't know how that works like if you're a buyer for pennies i mean are you worried about i mean do you even know that this company shouldn't be selling these things do you even care like i don't know you might have to be contacted directly by a lawyer or something (laughs) um but I don't even know if it's legally legal legally actionable at the retail level or if it's just the producer is going to get in trouble. You know what I mean? They might just I guess you can have this stuff confiscated if it's illegal, but I don't I don't know if these I any mean, short long story short like I don't know if these stores really even cared about any of that. They were just buying these things to to sell. And probably the response was so far in the distance, you know, where they looked at it and said, you know, legally they won't even come after us for months or years. Yeah. And you know, if they do, then, okay, we'll pull it. But um, for the time being, <laughs> we want this product to sell. Right. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't just, you know, novelty stores that they're like big retailers, you know, you know, Caldor, you know, regional or national le- retailers who had that thing in stock for a couple of years. The SST laser sword, I thought was one of the more interesting ones, if not the most interesting one, because of what it came with. It, it, you know, um, it was the first 
lightsaber that had a, a mythology around it and a, and a whole sense of story around it as well. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's the coolest one in the sense that there's just so much extra. It's got like added value. It's not just a, it is a, just a flashlight with a plastic tube, but it also comes in a box. It's got graphics. There's a manual. It changes colors. Right. So it's like a really cool product. Um, and you probably are aware of this, but Takara released a color change lightsaber in the UK. I mean, in, in Japan, and it had the same system where it's like you insert a gel between the light and the tube, and it changes the color from red to blue or whatever. And SST had that first, so I don't know if that influenced the Takara version, or if that, or if it was just organic. Like both companies came up with it at the same time. I did find a reference in a Canadian article about um, this is a retailer talking about what um, Irwin, the, the Canadian sub-licensee, had planned for toys. And one of the things he mentions is that they plan to release a lightsaber with a color change. So either that means one or two things. That means either Kenner was thinking of releasing that at one time and it got out to Irwin and they were talking about it. Or more likely, I think, is that they, Irwin might have at one point considered releasing the Takara product like they did with the walking R2-D2. Um, because it's interesting to see a color change lightsaber come up as a licensed thing in Canadian articles. Uh, but my guess is that they were thinking of releasing the Takara lightsaber at that time. Uh, but anyway, the, the Takara product aside, the SST laser sword is the only major saber product of that period that I'm aware of that you could change the colors with a gel like that. Right. And it's a simple idea that some, another company can, could essentially like Takara could look at the SST laser sword and say, we can do this exactly the same way. Yeah, it, it could be, it could be that influence that somehow. Um, no doubt. The manual that comes with it is fascinating because, um, the company that created the laser sword, really tried to create its own Star Wars adjacent mythology around it. So they had, um, they had instead of the, the Jedi, they had the soldiers of light. Um, and yeah. then they, they also, in the manual, they gave a little bit of history of the soldiers of light, but they also used it as a, a sales page where they sold a uniform for $15, a saber scabbard for $3, um, a book, you know, which I guess told the, the story of the soldiers of light for almost three bucks, um, mm-hmm. the, they, they had like their own, uh, membership club, uh, for $5, which included a certificate, a patch and a membership card. I just, I thought that was, you know, really fascinating that they had tried to make it a thing rather than just one item. Yeah, man. It's like that Apple sales model where you just, you know, you sell services on top of it. You sell the, the iPad and then you sell all this other stuff, you know, um, covers and AirPods and whatnot. But, um, yeah, it's pretty canny. I would love to find some of these things, like the outfit and the you know the books and whatnot. I don't know if they were really made or if they were just advertised and then they never actually sold any. I don't know, but I would I would love to find some of those things. It's really fascinating. I'm sure some have to exist. I mean, they probably didn't sell what they were expecting to sell because I think for most kids, just having the the saber was enough. Yeah, I would imagine so. Could you imagine being the kid on your block who had the the outfit it's like basically they went to some like some company that provided you know karate outfits for kids <laughs> just right, yeah. it's pretty cool. 
like what you would, the kids that I knew who took karate when they were, when I was younger or some kind of martial arts thing, they all had those little outfits. The gi, absolutely. And uh, yeah. that, that's how I was picturing it. You know, I, it, they showed sure in the pictures, dude, like some, they just went to with some kind of company that made karate costumes and they just bought those, that stuff. That's oh yeah. You know, you're getting something completely generic. I don't even know if there is like a label, um, an SST label on, on the outfit anywhere. I would love to interview this kid who is the model. You know, she's probably some. Actually, I'm not sure if it's a boy or a girl, to be completely honest. I think it's just a really cool-looking boy, but I'm not really sure. Um, but <laughs> that's a classic, the kid who did the modeling on the box. The kid looks like a rock star. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> like the coolest kid ever. I think you even said in the article, David Bowie would be proud. <laughs> yeah, I said David Bowie would ask for this kid's autograph. <laughs> All right. So that was article number one. That was a fascinating read. Um, how long did it take you to put that together? Oh, man, that was a while because it kept growing. Like I was like, OK, I'm going to tie in the laser sword and the force beam and the star force ray. And then as I searched, I found more and more ads. And then I was like, OK, I had a list. And then I'm like, before I go and write something, like, let me contact Pete Vilmer, because if I don't, I'm going to write it. And then he's going to email me and be like, hey, you should have mentioned this. And I'll be like, darn it. So I emailed Pete ahead of time and he provided a bunch more. Like it would not, I would not have as complete a list. Like the Winston cigarette laser sword, like that thing is just wild. I would love to have one of those. Okay. You have to explain that one. Cause that one was crazy, but it was it, fully 1970s, 1980s. It's an SST laser sword with part of it's mocked up to look like an, a Winston cigarette. So it's got like a decal or sticker around the base of it that looks like a cigarette with a Winston logo. And that, God knows what that was for. Pete said he thought it was for an industry show, and that might be the case. that They gave these out at some sort of tobacco industry show. Well, I think what they did, because my, my grandfather used to smoke, and I think they would send him catalogs, and you could buy items that were standard items, but they would just repurpose them. This one was crazy, though, because you had the, the lightsaber handle, which I think was in blue, and then um, they took part of the blade and they put, as you said, a sticker around it to look like a filter. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a filter. You're right. Yeah, that's the filter part. And I guess the white part's supposed to be the cigarette part of right. the blade there. But yeah, that's just great. I, I don't know of another tobacco-related Star Wars product, so it's a pretty small group, but... um that's just super seventies and just very cool. Um, you know, and then there's another one Pete had, which was, um, the space sword, which is just like interesting design. And that it's just all tube. There's no, there's no distinct handle, you know, to save costs and the batteries fit like right in there. Uh, but you know, most of these I was able to locate, um, advertising for them as well, which kind of helps me just contextualize like, okay, you know, Pete has a, a version of this and here it is in an ad. You know, that's always fun to, to marry up. And we also had a version, one bootleg saber that was used as, as a ma magician's implement. So you would buy it from like a magician catalog. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, I'd never seen something like that. I think that was a star beam. Yeah, the star beam. Yeah. And, and Pete has it with the, the instructions from the magician company and everything. It's pretty neat. So I, I think I actually had the star beam growing up. Uh, it was a, a black um, flashlight, and then it had a, a clear white tube or a translucent white tube with a red cap on the end of it. And right. that, for years, was my lightsaber. 
Yeah, that's really cool. That's that's a good story. Yeah, it's it's. It, I think a lot of people, and it, I got comments on the article to this effect were like, um, like, hey, this is something I hadn't thought about. I had one of those, and I hadn't even thought about this. So it's it's one of these areas of collecting that a lot of people sort of intersected with at some point. Um, but maybe maybe they haven't thought about it too hard since then. As they got into collecting, they just mostly focused on Kenner stuff. They're like, oh yeah, I remember <laughs> my friend had that thing. <laughs> um, you know, some people comment on funny ways or just like all oh, these things are junk because they <laughs> like all right well true um but it, for collectors it's fun to just be able to document and even own some of these things you know even if they weren't licensed then they were pretty junky and again i think your article did something very special for us because i think we had a very limited understanding of what they were and a lot of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s maybe had that one lightsaber and so when we thought of these knockoff ones, we specifically thought of that one. And I think you pulled the, the, the camera back a bit um, to give us a fuller perspective of how much was actually produced, why they were produced, what was available, and what the differences were. So uh, a fantastic read for anyone who hasn't read it. I, I fully recommend it because I, I think you did a great job of, of mapping that all out. And, and again, providing humor and, um, and a lot of interesting facts along the way, too. Yeah, well, I'm glad you like it. And that was the intent, really. A lot of this is um, to sort of, when I write something, a lot of times it's to explain something to myself, you know, and that's certainly, I felt I was in that position of not having a good overview of what was actually released then. So it's like, well, let's try to do some research and figure out the, to the best uh, extent possible, you know, what was actually out there at that time. And, you know, I, it does a pretty good job. Like I mentioned in the article, I'm 100% sure there's tons of other you know, bootleg sabers that are out there. You can't possibly cover every single thing, but I think we got most of the major ones. further in depth with Ron about the early bird certificate controversy and his thoughts on this summer's annual event and the collector meetups. So stay tuned for part three of our conversation on Star Wars, prototypes, and production. <laughs> 